Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. We welcome you to our 11 o'clock worship service, and we hope that you will find abundant joy as you come and worship our Lord this morning. One of my favorite stories tells of a man who has been lost and wanderingly, aimlessly in the desert for about five days. He happened to come to the home of a preacher whose home was in the desert. Tired in the week, he crawled up to the house and collapsed on the doorstep. The preacher took him in and nursed him back to good health. Feeling better, the man asked the preacher for directions to the nearest town. The preacher tells him the direction and offers to lend him his horse to make the journey quicker. But the preacher warns the man, you've got to know something about this horse. It's a special horse. It's a spiritual horse. And you must say to the horse, thank God to make him go. And you must say amen to make him stop. Anxious to get back to town, the man said, okay, sure, I'll take your horse. And he gets on the horse and he says, thank God. And sure enough, the horse starts walking. A bit later, he says louder, thank God, thank God, thank God. And the horse starts trotting. Feeling very brave, the man says, thank God, thank God, thank God. And now the horse is soon up to a full gallop run. About then, the man realizes the horse is heading towards a huge cliff. And then yells, whoa, to the horse. But the horse doesn't even slow down. The end of the cliff is coming very quickly, and the man is doing everything he can to make the horse stop. Whoa, stop, hold on. Finally, he remembers and he shouts, Amen. The horse stops a mere two inches from the cliff's edge, almost throwing him over its head. The man, panting and heart racing, wipes the sweat off his face and leans back in his saddle. Oh, he says, grasping for air, thank God. <laughs> How many times do we tell God thanks? But it's simply but lip service and we really don't mean it. How many times do the words thank God come out of our mouth simply as some obligatory word we say because we don't want God to take away our blessings because we didn't remember to thank Him. The only reason we thank Him is because we don't want God to take away our blessings. You know what I'm talking about. Well, as we continue our series entitled David, a man after God's own heart, we've been looking at different characteristics of a heart for God. And this morning, we come to the characteristic of thanksgiving. We want to see what it means to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving, a heart that genuinely is thankful to God. You see, as you've noticed in this series, I'm not here to give you 20 or 30 reasons on how to be thankful. I'm here to present to you the principles by which you can cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
As you know, we have completed our study in the book of 1 Samuel. There have been a few chapters which we have not had the privilege of looking at because of the time constraints of the series. But I want to encourage you as you head back into your homes and do your devotions that you would go back and read the chapters we weren't able to study together. But we're now at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and as we turn to this new book, we find out that David is now king over all Israel. From this point onward, in all of our sermons for the rest of this series, you must realize that David is now king over all Israel. David is no longer running from Saul. Saul has died in battle along with Jonathan, and we read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 31. In the first five chapters of 2 Samuel, David is able to consolidate the loyalty and the support of all the tribes of Israel. And finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he's finally recognized as king over all Israel. As we begin chapter 7 in verse 1 to 7, we are told that David tells the prophet Nathan that he has a heart desire to build a permanent structure for the Lord, a temple. It was a time of relative peace, and David believes that God deserves better. Why? Because David feels it is not right that he lives in the opulence of his palace, while God's presence residing in the Ark of the Covenant is housed under a tent. The prophet Nathan thinks this is a great idea and would inquire of God. God comes back surprisingly and tells David it is not yet time for his temple to be built. In fact, it was not his will for David to build this temple. Perhaps a bit discouraged, a bit surprised, God continues and tells David these things. Look at verse 8 as we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. The Lord tells David, David, I took you from being a shepherd of sheep to being a shepherd of my people as king over Israel. I've dealt with all of your enemies. I've taken care of them. I've made your reputation known as the great men of the ancient Near East. And if you notice these two verses, there's not a mention of why God chose David. Because the reason God took this shepherd of sheep to become a shepherd of men is because of his undeserved favor upon David, his grace. God tells David, David, I don't want you to build for me a temple. But let me tell you about my grace in your life. And look what he tells David in the second part of verse 11. And the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Can you imagine that? 
the goodness of David in his desire to honor the Lord, he tells God, God, I want to build you a permanent, beautiful house, a, a structure. God basically tells him, no thanks, but I want to make you and build you, David, an amazing house. Well, what type of house? What follows in verse 12 to verse 16 is the famous Davidic covenant. Look with me. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But note this, verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. God tells David, your house will be a royal house. A dynasty of kings, starting with you, David, and never ending. This is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant found in the book of Genesis that tells us that out of the Jewish people would arise a king who would rule forever. This person is, of course, Jesus Christ, who is from the tribe of Judah and from the lineage of David. And who will rule over the entire world on the Davidic throne when he comes again at the millennium. But here God promises David, I will build for you a house. I will build for you a legacy, a name that would last forever. Now what just happened here is this. David wants to do something for God. God says no need. I want to bless you. I want to honor you. I want to give you something you don't deserve. I want to pour upon my grace upon you. And I want to make your kingdom last forever. It's not because David promised him a temple that God gave him this covenant. It's solely on the basis of God's grace and his unconditional love for David that he decides to give to David this special promise. So overwhelmed this David at God's grace and kindness, he thanks God. And in one of the most beautiful prayers of thanksgiving, in my opinion, in the entire Bible, in verse 18 to verse 29, David will pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And from his prayer, we're going to draw out three principles for cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. Look with me at verse 18 to verse 21. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. 
Is this the manner of men, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. David comes before the Lord and he tells God, God, who am I? Who am I that I deserve all of your goodness and kindness? Never once does the king of Israel believe in his own hype. Does not allow his position and what he has accomplished to get to his head. He comes humbly before the Lord and he tells the Lord, who am I? Never once does he think he deserves any of God's goodness. Remember, this is the shepherd boy who is plucked out from all amongst his brothers to be the king of Israel. And herein lies the first principle for cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. If you're taking notes, number one. To cultivate a heart of thanksgiving, you must realize your unworthiness and recognize God's goodness. Realize your unworthiness and recognize God's goodness. In this prayer, David is already king over all Israel. And yet in this prayer, he calls himself a servant. Ten times. In this very short prayer, ten times he refers to himself as a lowly servant. And yet he refers eight times to the Adonai, the, the sovereign almighty God. You see, David is putting himself where he needs to be and where he really is. He is a servant, a lowly servant of the great king. We are often not thankful because somehow in our heart of hearts, we believe that somehow we deserve all that we have and all that has been given to us. If you believe this morning that because of the hard work of your hands, you deserve what you have and you deserve what has been given to you, can I just simply say this with all love and kindness, get off your high horse. You have forgotten your standing before God. Do not forget that you don't deserve anything. And yet, by the grace of God, everything has been given to you. You see, that's the problem of our generation today. We call it the entitlement generation, the entitlement culture. This is what I deserve. This is what is owed me. That's right. I have worked hard. I've done my best. This is what is owed me. I'm entitled to this. No wonder parents often come up to me and complain and wonder why their children are so ungrateful. Well, partially it's because not only have they been a part of the entitlement generation, we put them up onto a pedestal. 
We so love our children that we actually do them a disservice by putting them up on a, up on a pedestal and saying, you deserve all this. And then we wonder why they are not more grateful. Unfortunately, the extension of this sort of philosophy and thinking, which is so prevalent in the world today, is dangerous because it leads people to think that they are too good to need God. We are unthankful. We are people who are not grateful because we do not realize our own unworthiness while recognizing God's goodness. Now, please understand, I'm not telling you every morning for you to wake up and say to yourself, I am unworthy, I am unworthy, I am unworthy. That would get you very depressed. But what I'm trying to tell you is this, you must cultivate an attitude that realizes that you are indeed unworthy, and yet by the grace of God, you recognize how good God has been to you. Because when that happens, you create in your heart a heart of contentment. And with a heart of contentment, you will cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. Instead of thinking what I still need because everyone has it, what I still want, what I still deserve because I'm a better person than that other person, and if that other person has it, then so I must have it as well. My attitude is changed to one that says, you know, I don't deserve all the things that I have, but look at all that I have. Lord, I'm so thankful. Contentment drives a heart of thanksgiving. Put your finger in Second Samuel. Would you turn over with me to the book of Psalm? Psalm 103, verse 1 and 2. A Psalm of David, which we've just read in our scripture reading. David writes this in Psalm 103, verse 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and note this, and forget not all his benefits. I don't know when he wrote this psalm. He could have written this psalm in the opulence of living in the kingly palace. Or he could have written this psalm while he's running away from Saul, living in the caves of Engedi in the wilderness of Ziph. If that is when this psalm is written, the statement becomes more impactful. As I'm running away from Saul, as I'm on the run as a fugitive, if David can say, bless the Lord, thank the Lord, O my soul, because I have not forgotten all of his benefits, then you begin to understand this principle. It's because we've forgotten his benefits. I'm, t- I'm telling you to remember all of them. If you begin even to remember some of them, you will recognize how good God is in your life. And how unworthy you are to receive that goodness. I warned you before and I warn you again. My friends, do not ever get accustomed to your blessings. We even did an entire sermon series on this from grumbling to gratitude was the title. And if you remember, when the Israelites forgot God's blessings. When they saw as the miracle of manna, a mundane miracle. If a miracle can indeed be mundane and ordinary. 
They were complaining, miracle, miracle, miracle. All we ever see is miracle. God, we need more. You see, they had gotten used to their blessings. They had taken their blessings for granted. And when they began to grumble, they began to sin. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits. Realize your unworthiness. But recognize God's goodness. Our second principle for cultivating a heart of thanksgiving is found in verse 22 to verse 24. Look with me. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. David continues in his prayer by recognizing the greatness of God. He says in verse 22, God, there is no one like you. Now pause for a minute there and ask yourself the question, how does recognizing the greatness of God cultivate within you a heart of thanksgiving? What does God's greatness have to do with being thankful? Well, the reason is found in verse 23 and verse 24. David recalls a moment in his people's history how God took an insignificant people group such as the Israelites and he made them great. And he says, you, God, have taken this one nation of the earth, verse 23, and you went to redeem for yourself a people to do great and awesome deeds. God, you... you took us, this lowly nation, and you made us unworthy in all, a people that you called your own, that you truly cared about, that you lavished upon love. And therein lies our second principle for cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. Number two. Realize your insignificance and recognize God's greatness. Realize your insignificance and recognize God's greatness. Some of you this morning may think you're pretty significant. I'm here to deflate your ego, I'm here to cut you down to size. You may not like to hear this, but the reality is you're really nothing in this world. You may think that in your own community, amongst your own bubble or your own circle of friends, you're pretty popular. You're, you're pretty much up there. You've reached the pinnacle of society. But honestly, outside of your community of friends, outside of your little bubble, you're really no one. The truth, the hard fact, is that you are one of more than 7 billion people in this world. 
one of seven billion. And if you were the subject of a random act of violence and you were to die, the world would move on. Uh, yes, your circle of friends may mourn you for a day and remember you for a week and maybe possibly think about you for a month. But the reality is this. Your death has no bearing on how the world marches on. Think about all the thousands of people that die every day. And you, you yourself barely blink an eye. The others who are reading the newspaper, perhaps about your tragic death, will also not blink an eye. Realize and recognize your insignificance. Put your finger in Second Samuel and turn with me over to Psalm chapter 8, verse 3 to 4. Psalm chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, this idea so overwhelmed David. Look what he writes in Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, Note verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You know what David's saying? Lord, you are the God of the universe. Who am I? What is man or woman that you should even care about us? I was looking at some statistics I'd looked in the past before. We live in a very large earth. But if we were to scale the earth to the size of a grain of sand, let's say about one millimeter. If we were to scale everything to the size where the earth is one millimeter, our sun would be about 38 feet away from that grain of sand. That doesn't sound very impressive to you, I'm, I'm sure. But the earth to the closest star next to our sun, Proxima Centauri, would be 460 miles away. For some of you, you say, well, that's still drivable. I can still fathom that. If you're on this earth the size of a grain of sand, one millimeter, to leave our very own galaxy, the Milky Way, with over 200 billion stars, it would take you a length of 46 million miles just to get out of our solar system, our galaxy. One scientist notes that if the earth were the size of a speck of dust, again about one millimeter, to reach the edges of the observable universe, that which, we, which can be observed, and there's still lots of the universe that cannot be observed, you would have to travel on earth as a speck of dust three trillion miles to get even to the edge of the observable universe. Three trillion miles. Can you even fathom that in your mind? 
And you are one of seven billion on that little speck of dusk. And when you think about that, it's kind of funny and comical that you who are one of seven billion people who if the earth was shrunk to the size of a speck of dust and who have to travel three trillion miles just to get to the borders of the observable universe, you have the audacity and the gall to tell God what to do. To tell the God of the universe what you think He needs to do. Or suggest to Him what He needs to do. And complain that He doesn't do more in your life. And complain that He doesn't do this and He doesn't do that. That's what David says. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? David says, there is no one like God, so great a God, so amazing a God, and how he would care for someone so insignificant as myself. And when I realize that truth, I'm forever thankful. I'm thankful every day. I'm going to thank God that as the God of the universe who has so much things to do, would care to know my name, would care to know my hurts, would care to know if I have food, if I go hungry, if I have good health or getting over a simple cold, if I have clothes to wear, if I'm happy, if I'm sad, if I'm hurting. You see, a, a thankful heart is not just flippantly telling God, Hey, God, thanks. Thanks for what I got. And that's how we usually pray. Thanks, God. I achieved something. Thanks, God. But it's for you to really understand that someone so almighty and so awesome as a God who controls the entire universe would care about you and me. And then to send His Son, God Himself, to die not for the universe, to die for you individually. So that the insignificant you can have a resurrected body, can have eternal life, can have a purpose, can find joy. If you can't be thankful as you sit and remember this great truth, I don't know what will get you to be thankful. I hope you'll be thankful to God every day for what He does for you and how He protects you and how He provides for you. Realize your insignificance. Recognize God's greatness. We close this prayer in verse 25 to verse 29. And herein we find our third principle. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. 
So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken in it, and with your blessing let the house of your servant be blessed forever. David tells the Lord, Lord, whatever you have said, do it. You have promised something that will last forever, something that will outlive me. And since it's not something I can control, I put my trust in you. Now, there we go again. We have the concept where David shows forth trust. How does trust and a thankful heart come together? The key is in verse 28. Look what David prays to God. And now, O Lord God, you are God. Now, does God need to be reminded that he is God? No. But I believe David is reminding himself that the Lord he prays to, he is God. A God with all of the characteristics that he knows about God. A God, because he is God, verse 28, your words are true. And since you have promised something and you are God, it will come to pass. And in verse 29, for this I am thankful. Herein lies the third principle for cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. Realize your changeability and recognize God's immutability. It's a theological word. Realize your changeability. Recognize God's immutability. Immutability is a theological word that describes the unchangeable character of God. His unchanging attribute. I recognize God's unchanging attributes. He does not change. He's always the same. Now that's a deeper concept to understand in how to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. But let me try to explain it this way. Our life is in a constant change. We change. The people around us change. The very situation in which we live changes. But the God in whom we place our trust in does not change. We can break promises. God not only does not break promises, His character tells us He cannot break promises. And that's why we can be thankful. Because what He tells us in the Scriptures, will always come to pass. And that's what David is saying in verse 25 to verse 29. The situation will change, and we see that if you know the history of the kings of Judah. There will be those who follow God, like Hezekiah and Josiah. 
But there will be those who do not follow God. But when God makes an unconditional promise to David, He will carry it out in spite of the changeability of man. So my friends, I don't know what you're going through. Your situation may be one of great difficulty at this moment. You may be going through trials. There may be circumstances. Perhaps you're not going through trials now, but tomorrow you're going to get a big wake-up call Monday morning when your boss comes and talks to you. Your deal will sink tomorrow. The stock market may crash tomorrow. Whatever the circumstances that happen tomorrow, you can be thankful that the God who is in control never changes. And for that, I am eternally grateful. I'm eternally thankful. Whatever happens to me, things will turn out all right. Because the word of God says he will never leave me nor forsake me. He promises me blessings and he promises you those who are his children. Perhaps this illustration may help illustrate this principle. The famous Bible scholar Matthew Henry was once accosted by thieves and they robbed his wallet. That evening, he wrote these words in his diary. Let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. This was the first time. He writes, let me be thankful secondly because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. He writes, let me be thankful thirdly, because although they took my all, it was not that much. And then he writes, let me be thankful fourthly, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. I wonder this afternoon if you have your wallet or purses stolen, heaven forbid, or someone steals your cell phone, I wonder how many of you immediately would jump onto Facebook or some social media and complain how unfair life is and complain about those no-good thieves and criminals. Complain and complain. Very few, I believe, including myself, could have... A heart of thanksgiving that says, this has happened, but God still loves me and he's protected me even in this occurrence. I am thankful because God does not change. His character and his words are always true. They're always consistent. His love is always consistent, unchanging, unconditional. Realize your own changeability. Recognize God's immutability. And when you think about such things and they permeate into your heart, you will begin to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. You know, I cannot force you to be thankful. 
I cannot prevent you from continuing to simply play the lip service and the obligatory words of thanking God. Many of you often wonder, what is the will of God for me? It's interesting that in the New Testament, there are only two places where it is specifically written, this is the will of God. It's interesting to note that in one of these occurrences in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, where it is explicitly stated, this is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says this, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You may or may not want to be thankful, but if you want to follow the will of God, God tells us, it is my will that my people are always thankful. Why is this such a great truth? And why is it so important to apply? Because God knows that when we do not cultivate a heart of thanksgiving, it leads us down a path that becomes very ugly. But if one can cultivate a heart of thanksgiving, then it begins to transform the heart. It begins to renew the mind. It will make you become more Christ-like. I end this morning with one of my favorite poems. Listen as I read this poem entitled, Forgive Me, Lord, When I Whine. Today upon a bus I saw a lovely maid with golden hair. I envied her. She seemed so happy and how I wished I were so fair. When suddenly she rose to leave, I saw her hobble down the aisle. She had one foot and wore a crutch, but as she passed, a smile. Oh God, forgive me when I whine. I have two feet. The world is mine. And when I stopped to buy some sweets, the lad who served me had such charm. He seemed to radiate good cheer. His manner was so kind and warm. I said, it's nice to be with you. Such courtesy I seldom find. He turned and said, oh, thank you, sir. And then I saw that he was blind. Oh, God, forgive me when I whine. I have two eyes. The world is mine. Then, when walking down the street, I saw a child with eyes of blue. He stood and watched the others play. It seemed he knew not what to do. I stopped a moment, then I said, Why don't you join the others, dear? He looked ahead without a word, and then I knew he could not hear. Oh God, forgive me when I whine. I have two ears, the world is mine. With feet to take me where I go, with eyes to see the sunsets glow, with ears to hear what I would know, I am blessed indeed.
The world is mine. Oh God, forgive me when I whine. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And I ask for forgiveness. If the heart of mine is one that whines. Bring into each heart this morning a heart of thanksgiving. Not only because you are pleased in such things, but because our very attitude towards you begins to change. The way we live our life begins to be transformed. May this church, this body of believers, be a thankful church, cultivating in each person here this morning a heart of thanksgiving. Lord, I pray that as we continue to think about who we are in our position, every day we are so thankful for how the God of the universe would care to know my name and know what I'm going through and care to deal with the situation in the best way that he so sees fit. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.